Good morning again, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. And I've been trying to, I've been puzzled over what bad thing you all must have done to have to listen to me two weeks in a row. I would suggest confession and repentance. (laughs) That's all right. We're talking about the very essence of God. We can't go wrong, right? As you can tell, I have a lot of words that I get out. Now, I'll do like Adam and say, God wired me this way. It's his fault. But I'll try to be concise. Um, And uh, I want to bring our hearts and minds together in the unity of our passion to know him more and better by restating a couple of things. Now, remember this. We're going to worship God throughout eternity and never fully detail all of his attributes. So, you know, no amount of repetition is too much. And if somebody thinks that they're repeating this study too much, it's a mistake because you can't ever get to the bottom of it. If you have, please let me know because I don't think I ever will. There's a multitude of great resources out there to study the attributes of God, like the the book that I reference and we're working through in Sunday School by A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God. There's a bunch of other resources out there. And you can go deeper into the true character of God, who He is, and several things become really clear and more apparent, right? I want you to understand and think about this as we go through this. Your election and salvation is an utter mystery. It's a mysterious miracle bestowed by God alone. And... So our self-view, our pride and sin become more obvious as we uncover more about this most holy father that we have and we shrink before him as we go deeper into who he is. And again, like you need to understand the, the biblical truth of election is eternal and it's personal. And as that's as Spurgeon says, and, and all of mankind is, is held in the grip of utter depravity, total depravity. So given that, salvation can only come from God. And I only reiterate this because of, again, like we said when we started, we're in a crucial area of Scripture that this needs to be examined from a biblical standpoint in context. Um, salvation is of the Lord. Um, and in Romans 11.32 it says, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And so, again, in the context of this section of Romans, this is with regards to spiritual Israel, all of you who are in Christ. And this is another area of Scripture that's widely misunderstood, right? So we shall carry on with our study and do the next several attributes together. Um, Let's just pray to start. Let's let's pray together. Father God, um, you alone are worthy You are unique. There is none like you. I pray that the eyes of our hearts and the eyes of our minds would be firmly fixed on you like a laser beam. This this worship service, again, as stated before and as we should recognize every single time we gather, is unique in all of Christian history, in all of human history. There will never be another day like this. Um, but it is incumbent on us to recognize that you are worthy. You are the audience of one. It's to you 
that we look for all things. You're the author and giver of all life. You're the sustainer. Um, You're the one who provides the new song as we sung. It's a song of redemption. And you have redeemed us. You have sheltered us from your wrath. And so today, um, we have the honor and the privilege and the joy of looking deeper into your character, even a little bit, insofar as we can understand. So I just pray that, uh, again, you would empty me of myself. I am made of dust and nothing. And so fill me with your Holy Spirit. Use me as a pencil to glorify your holy name because only you are worthy. And it's in your holy name that I pray. Amen. So the first attribute we're going to talk about is what is called the immutability of God. Again, some theology to learn here, theological terms. You know these. You guys are smart, but I'll say it again. Uh, the unchanging nature of God is what that is. Um, John Dick in 1850 said this, The divine immutability, like the cloud which interposed between the Israelites and the Egyptian army, has a dark side as well as a light side. That God is unchanging in veracity and purpose, in faithfulness and justice. And again, I like the old vocabulary words. You know, veracity here is in regards to habitual truthfulness and accuracy and conformity to the facts. So God is unchanging and in that regard. He has no beginning, no end. He doesn't change. And this attribute here distinguishes him from all created beings. He's compared in Scripture to a rock because in human eyes, a rock doesn't change, right? And so... Had you ever considered that to be one of the names of God? God has a bunch of names, right? But this is one that's pretty nice. It's uh, Deuteronomy 32.4. It says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Of God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. In the New Testament, James says, James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we see here, he is unchanging in his essence. And his essence is the most significant part or quality without which he would not be who he is. So he is unchanging in his true essence. In Malachi, it says this, Malachi 3.6, in talking about robbing God, it says, God says through the prophet, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So if he did change, he's saying, I would have consumed you, but I don't change. So he's saying to us there, he's always been and will never cease to be. He's not going to evolve, grow, improve, or learn new things. He's not going to deteriorate. That's comforting, right? He's not going to be affected by anything outside of himself. His power and his glory will never fade. And so given all of that, um, the question comes up, well, how can he, how did he describe himself um, in the past? And you see this in Exodus, Moses' interaction with God. What did he say? Moses asked him, what am I to tell the people of Israel? What is your name? And he said, first off, I am who I am. And then say this, 
I am has sent you. And say this also, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He's never going to change. And that applies logically and biblically to all of his attributes, those inherent parts of who he is. They're the same now as they were before he created the universe into existence, right? And he will remain so on into whatever the future is without time. And you can name a bunch of them, right? We'll, we'll get to some of the major ones, but there's a innumerable ones. Holiness, mercy, love, grace, power, wisdom, and again, veracity. And his word will stand forever. Uh, Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And given all of that, his unchanging perfection, his unchanging nature, he's unchanging in his counsel, his advice that he left us in Scripture will never change. Exhortations, advocacy, but his counsel to us through his word, through his son. You know, his will never varies. His decree will never change. Truth will never change. And as you know... God cannot lie. Now, have you trapped in Sunday school, okay? You can't get away. So your homework is, show me in Scripture where it says God can't lie. Just remember I'm an easy grader, so I give away easy grades. It's not that hard, but that's your homework. Um, Psalm 33, 11 and 12 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the na- nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. You that are in Christ, the people of God, his counsel to you, his advice, the instructions, the way he left for us to guide our lives and make our decisions will never change or vary. And so I ask you to compare like the the comparison is to ourselves, right? As created beings, creatures, we are what's called mutable. We are inconstant. We're liable to change by nature. Um, and our opinions change. And our advice varies sometimes. And we change and grow through the different stages of life. And you can see this if you're honest with yourself. Think about the instability of our emotions and our mood and most other things in ways. And you can ask me something on Monday and I'll change my mind and advice on Friday sometimes. Depends on what it is. God never varies though. And there is solid comfort for us as believers. We are people of dust. We are covered by the gospel. The eternal covenant of love in Psalm 54, 4 says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And so... You have to look at the other side of it. For those that are not in Christ, what does it say? There will be terror for the wicked, you know. God is a fierce God. He will protect the glory of his name at all costs. In Ezekiel 8.18 it says, Therefore I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. The only hope to avoid that aspect of who God is is to trust and believe in the gospel because everyone 
every human being ever and every human being to come will face the holiness of God. It can't be avoided. And that's our next attribute. J.C. Ryle says, Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God according as we find his mind described in Scripture. It is the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. Because the, the question comes up like, we're commanded to live lives of holiness, right? How in the world do you do that? That's a pretty good start right there. You have to agree that God is right, that his counsel is true, and use the standard of his word. Um, just like in the song we just sang, you know, you I'll recall Isaiah's vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. What happened? The Lord, the the seraphim said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So I want you to think about this too. Like, how would you define the holiness of God for someone who's not familiar with with a skeptic or if you had somebody who's a new believer in the faith, how would you define the holiness of God? It sort of makes you pause, right? It's kind of hard to get a grip on it. So you have to dissect it through his word. It is one of the most, if not the most difficult of God's attributes to explain. But it is obviously an enormous part of his unique essence. Um, Again, Pink says this, He is so because the sum of all moral excellency is found in him. His holiness is the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. And in 1 John it says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And Exodus exclaims, who is like you, majestic in holiness? And think about like some of the, some of the attributes that we can share with God in our human state. What would you say? Love, mercy, kindness peace, patience, some others. But this one is difficult, right? You can't share this attribute with God directly only through Christ. This one is different. And so in Revelation, it states in Revelation fifteen four, for you alone are holy. Your righteous acts have been revealed. And it is holiness is basically, you can think of it like this. It is the full and complete expression of who God is more than all the others I would, I would put to you there. He swears and makes promises several times in Scripture by His holiness to Abraham. And it is by His holiness that He swears most of the time. Uh, the Puritan Stephen Charnock said this, and this is really a good way to think of it. This is, this is a beautiful statement. He says, Power is God's hand or arm omniscience his eye, mercy his bowels, eternity his duration, but holiness is his beauty. So it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His arm of power, a holy arm. His truth or promise, a holy promise. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, 
is holy. And you can pepper this with scriptural references. And it is manifested in all of his works. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. There's scriptural proof of this. Nothing but that which is excellent can proceed from him. And holiness is the rule of all his actions. At the beginning, he even pronounced everything that he made very good. And man was made in his image and the likeness of his creator. Then what happened? Well, it's the same pattern since God invented human beings, right? And God's holiness had to be manifested through his law. And so the law of God forbids sin in all of its manifestations. You can see, you can tie every type of sin back to God's law. It's so simple, but yet complex, right? It includes sin that is refined and gross, the intent of the human heart and mind, the pollution of the body with overt acts encompasses everything humans might do that would be the opposite of God's holiness. And you can see this in, in Romans 7. We have just gone over this, you know, Paul talking about the law and sin. And so he illustrates to us in Romans 7 verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good despite who we are. And so... Where would you expect to find his holiness most clearly in evidence? It's a rhetorical question. You all know this. It's most most vividly seen and manifested as at the cross, right? And and you might say, Well, how is that? You know, how I I I agree and I I believe that's true, but how do I connect the dots in my mind? Who is our example? Who are we to be like? Christ, right? Jesus. We're supposed to conform our lives to him as completely and utterly as possible. I want you to see this in Scripture. Psalm 22. It's a great reference about the the suffering of Christ at the cross. And I want you to note how Jesus, in the midst of unimaginable anguish still adores the holy perfection of the Father. Even going through what he's going through, he still acknowledges God's holiness. It says this, Psalm 22, verses 1 through 3, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night... But I find no rest. Here it is. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. So Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, acknowledges that God is holy. He is fierce, though. You know, he must and will protect his holy name at all costs. He will protect it. You know, just ask the sons of Aaron, ask Pharaoh and his army, Ask the men, women, and children of Korah who God threw into the abyss. Ask the people of Noah's day and Sodom and Gomorrah. Ask Christ how strongly will a holy God defend his name. And so we need to think about that and recognize that because he's holy, he has to hate all sin. I've said this before, and I it's... 
it's true. I mean, if you lived an utterly holy life, and the only thing you ever did, the only sin you ever committed was eating one grape at Kroger that you didn't pay for, that would be enough. God would not wink at that. That would be enough to consign you to separation from Him in hell for all eternity. Um, it is no joke with God, right? Um, and I want to, um, I want you to think about this. Uh, this may shock you a little bit to think about, but it's utterly true. God has never, ever forgiven a single sin. Pause. Think about that. God has never forgiven, nor will he ever forgive a single sin. It's either punished on the person that committed it outside of Christ, or it's punished on Christ for all who would believe. But he has never forgiven a single sin. He cannot. Now, to balance that so that you don't walk out... (laughs) He has forgiven a multitude of sinners. God forgives sinners through Christ. But he has never forgiven a single sin. He cannot. Um, It's the truth. Again, it's either punished on the sinner alone or it's punished on Christ. But it's always punished. But he is a God of mercy and love, right? And he created a pathway for us not to be punished. Um, And, you know... Because of that, you can easily conclude and see from Scripture that because God is holy, acceptance and forgiveness by Him due to anything creature-based is utterly impossible. There's not a pathway to heaven. There's not a pathway to forgiveness outside of what God provides. And so we must approach Him with uttermost reverence, right? That's part of the definition of the fear of God, approaching Him with uttermost reverence reverence and our greatest desire should be to be obedient to him and conform to him and to cooperate with our becoming more like christ once you realize that it is a stunning serious truth god is holy and so it should it should bring us to a serious point in our lives where we discipline ourselves pray and ask for forgiveness and try not to entertain the temptations that pester you every single day. It will only lead you to unholiness. So we have an advocate, though, the God of peace in First Thessalonians 5. The God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. That is our only hope as simple creatures of the dust to turn to Christ. Only he alone can bear our sins. We can't. We can't. Um, And the next attribute is the power of God. And so, again, I would ask you this. Think about this. Think about this. How would you define what is the power of God? Um, Another quote from Pink. As God hath a will to resolve what he deems good so has he power to execute his will. And so, Scripture says a lot of things about what the power of God is. It operates in and through the gospel to everyone who believes. And the power of God calls us effectually that way, right? 
Remember what Scripture says in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And in 1 Corinthians, it sanctifies us as we're being saved. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God, right? So the true summary, if you want to look at and study the power of God, it's represented by Christ, right? Christ, in 1 Corinthians one twenty four, it says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. And when we live in obedience and faith in Christ, we have to proceed in the power of God because we don't have any of our own. So remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He didn't come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech and human abilities. He came in weakness and fear and much trembling. And so he wanted that to be the case. He wanted them to understand that it's only through the power of God that he could effectively do the ministry he was called to because if it was not so, their faith might not rest in, in, in God but in the wisdom of men, but it should rest in the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so this in no way, just like all the others, just as a reminder, we can't completely define it, you know. Again, Charnock says, the power of God is that ability and strength whereby he can bring to pass whatsoever he pleases, whatsoever his infinite wisdom may direct, and whatsoever the infinite purity of his will may resolve. As holiness is the beauty of all God's attributes, so power is that which gives life and action to all the perfections of the divine nature. God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature, by us. And so all power, true power, belongs to God alone. Spurgeon said, God's power is like himself self-existent, self-sustained. The mightiest of men cannot add so much as a shadow of increased power to the omnipotent one. He sits on no buttressed throne and leans on no assisting arm. His court is not maintained by his courtiers, nor does it borrow its splendor from his creatures. He himself, the great central source and originator of all power. Remember Job, he learned of God's power very well, right? That's very easy to see and study. And you can see how God's power, like you can break it down into several different subdivisions and components. One way is his power is manifested in creation. You think Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created with no such thing as effort, right? And in the Psalms, you see it, it celebrates The heavens are yours. The earth is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them in Psalm 89. And how did he do that? Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So that same power through Christ is manifested in preservation. So the power of God preserves that which he has created which is if you use the tools that mankind has, like math and physics and all all the tools that we have that we can use to apply 
to the physical world, it, it just outstrips any ability of man to really understand how in the world the, the created universe is continuing to exist, right? You can see this in Scripture, again, in, in Job and Genesis and some other places. But I want you to most notably understand and recognize that the power of God preserves His saints, His people, His unique people. In Christ, you can see this in John and Romans, and in trials, you see this in James and Romans too. And He upholds and preserves everything through Christ, right? Including the universe, everything. In Hebrews 1, it says He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Fortunately for us, and it seems to be somewhat unraveling a little bit, but you can see God's power demonstrated in the administration of governments, right? Scripture's clear on this. The government is upon the shoulder of Christ, our wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, it says in Isaiah 9, 6. And the Lord reigns in Psalm 93. He's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. The Lord on high, He is mighty. And so, again, I, you can see a repetitive theme in, in these attributes, and rightly so. I want you to understand, God's power is most greatly seen at the cross. And His power magnifies the glory of His great name in such a way that it's, it should be obvious to every living creature. And it goes forth with no such thing as effort. Not effort as we would understand it. It's the word of his power. And this is good for us because we stand in an unconditional footing with God through Christ. And as such, his power shields us, leads us, guides us, and directs us. And just like grace and faith, we operate in the power of God in this life and it all comes from Him. Because Scripture's clear on this. He's unchangeable in Job. It says this, Job 23. He's unchangeable and who can turn Him back? What He desires, that He does. For He will complete what He appoints for me and many such things are in His mind. So we tremble before Him. We bow before Him. You know, fear of the Lord needs to be the theme of our hearts. But also, what's the big thing for us that we can rest in? Through all of these things, we learn to trust Him. You can trust Him. Because, why? He is faithful. God is faithful. And that's a major comforting attribute of God, the faithfulness of God. You can see this clearly demonstrated everywhere in Scripture. Faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of Christ. You know, Deuteronomy says this in 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 36, 5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And so, I want to ask you this. How do you think that God incorporates us into the attribute of faithfulness? 
where do we turn? Like, not between my ears, right? If I turn to the source between my ears, I will fall off the cliff. If I turn to the Holy Word of God, then you're on solid ground, right? So, looking at Romans 3, you know these words. It says this, and it recognizes we are creatures. We are simple creatures of the dust, fallible. It says, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. He knows our failings. He knows our weakness. In Galatians 5, you know, these, you know, I should wake you up at three in the morning out of a dead sleep and say, tell me the fruit of the Spirit now, you know. And you should be able to say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now get out of my house, right? But faithfulness is one of the, one of the ways that the Spirit of Christ pours out of our lives. It's freely given to us. And so, just like all these others, it, in no way can we completely define God's faithfulness. What about limits? You know, are there any limits? I find it hard to list any um, to the children of God. Uh, because faithfulness is obviously essential to God's being, right? Again, Pink says, Far above all the finite comprehension is the unchanging faithfulness of God. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forfeits his word. His word will not change and it won't be set aside for anyone because he's faithful to himself, faithful to Christ, and he's faithful to us. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or threatening, he will make good. For God is not a man, as it says in Numbers. There's many, many references in scripture about God's faithfulness. Um, When you think about faithfulness, I want you to remember this. This is really important and it's really uh, encouraging and it gives comfort when you need comfort because life is hard, right? Faithfulness, if you study it, you dwell on it, you stand on it and believe it, it always gives birth to hope. That's what we need on this side of eternity, right? Is hope. Um, Lamentations three twenty-two to twenty-four says, "The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases; His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning." Thank you, Lord. Great is Your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. So faithfulness gives birth to hope in the midst of trials and life on this side of eternity. One day you won't need it so much, maybe. God's faithfulness is manifested in how he deals with creation, right? Just as a a small aspect of this. Think about his promise to Noah after the flood. You know, he said, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And for thousands of years, these conditions have remained the same because God is faithful, right? His faithfulness reigns. Um, And again, I would remind you of what it says in Hebrews, that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. His faithfulness maintains creation, And most specifically, and most importantly to you all that are in Christ, is 
you can see his faithfulness being demonstrated in the preservation of his people, his saints, and in his relations with us. Thank God for his faithfulness to us, right? In 1 Corinthians 4, we are sustained in Christ by God to be seen as guiltless through him. It's the only pathway, the only way. And we are sustained in Christ our Lord forever, it says in John, and in trials that are ordained by God. You see this in James. Um, And he preserves and upholds everything through Christ, both the physical creation, as we said, and the spiritual life he has created in his people and authors and continues to promote and sustain. And that's even seen, his faithfulness is even seen. You have to trust this, again, because life is hard. But in the demonstration of the discipline of his people, you can see the faithfulness of God. Psalm 119, verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And so just, who does that sound like a model? What did I just read you about Christ? In the midst of his suffering, he recognized the holiness of God. In the midst of your trials, you have to acknowledge, and it's an anchor that will give you hope that God is faithful. He will complete in you that which he starts and that which he wants to bring about. And he disciplines us as sons and daughters because he loves us. Remember the verses in Hebrews 12. Because we belong to him, he wants us to be like Christ, right? And ultimately, you see his faithfulness demonstrated in the glorification of his people eventually that even now we are blameless in Christ, but in the future, you know, we will share in the glory of Christ. And so some of the pearls about this are very deep. But you can, I want you to never forget this, you know, because life is not like building a chair. It's never just going to sit there and stay the same. It's always up and down, always. So I want you to hang on to this with both hands and both feet, right? God's faithfulness should keep us from worry and doubt and fear. And God's faithfulness should promote a contentedness Contented spirit is a great honor to the Lord. To be discontent is to say, Lord, what you've provided me is not good enough. And I'm not happy like a spoiled child. You know, we all tend to do that. But really, we lack nothing important. What has he not provided to us, right? What promise has he broken? God's faithfulness should promote increasing confidence and trust in him. And to keep hope alive in you hope. And so again, his faithfulness is a gift like grace and faith to believe. We can depend on the faithfulness of God in this life. It is certain. It is certain you can anchor your soul on the faithfulness of God. Trust me on that. Explore it in scripture. I challenge you to explore it. Do a self-study just in scripture alone. It is encouraging. It's enlightening. And it really uncovers how good God is. The goodness of God is is just beyond description almost. He is good. Um, For you theologians in there, here's a term that's seldom used, and it's an old term. It's his omnibenevolence, right? Uh, Theologically. 
that he alone is supremely good. And so we established a minute ago that God never leaves one sin unpunished. But does this make him not good that he punishes sin? We, I think we, are, we worked our way through that, right? I, um, again, I, I like these little quotes sometimes from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was, he's not recognized enough for being one of the foremost geniuses of the sum total history of mankind. C.S. Lewis was an unmitigated genius. He didn't get enough credit, but I like his writings. You know, it's kind of brain candy, some of it, Narnia. Remember, uh, Mr. Beaver said to Lucy, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. You know, that's a that's a really good snippet. Um, and the goodness of God here refers to the perfection of his nature. And again, you can't completely define it. But how would you define, how would you begin a study of his goodness being part of his essence? I like this quote here by Thomas Mann. I have a lot of quotes because there's a lot of old guys that really captured it better than anybody these days. He says, uh, he is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super added quality. In God, it is his essence. He is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He is eternally and immutably good, for he cannot be less good than he is. As there is no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him. And for you Latin scholars, this the term is summum bonum. And it's applicable here. It's the highest good, or more accurately, that term from the old original means the supreme good from which all others are derived. And so God's goodness is inherent. It is part of him. It is underived and was present before he gave being to all things, which in itself was an outpouring of the goodness of God. Like another answer to that age-old question, why do we exist? Because of the goodness of God just overflowed and did all of creation, right? And again, just like the other attributes, his goodness is seen in a variety of natural pleasures and it's not confined to man alone, but also manifested to creation. Just think about, you know, God could have kept us alive as biological organisms by giving us only tofu to eat, right? Just sort of bland, tasteless. It would keep you alive. It has calories, a little bit of value, but he didn't. The, think of the beautiful arrays of food that, that God has given us and the beauty all around you, sunsets and food and, and different things that you can experience in this life. His goodness is amazing to us and it's, it's deep, it's intricate. Um, and the deeper you look at it, the more perfection you see and the more goodness and mercy you see flowing freely from God with every little thing. Think about how much you've engaged in life since you were little. All the things, like your favorite color or your favorite vacation place, how much you like the smell of fresh-cut grass, all of it. Sunsets, fresh air, 
pine trees. It's, it's amazing. And it's too much to list, right? And you can see this same goodness tempers how mercifully he dispenses his judgment, right? He's patient. And he measures perfect justice based on perfect judgment in a way that doesn't make it doesn't nullify his goodness. His goodness combines with it and it doesn't violate his holiness. It's a miraculous combination of his essence, right? And so, again, you can see the repetitive themes of this. It all points to Christ, right? His goodness is most notably seen when he sent forth his son. And God's goodness should provoke in us a right attitude of humility and gratitude always. And it should promote an increasing confidence and hope in him, right? And this one is very special for us as people, right? It most appeals to our hearts. And I would submit to you that God's goodness is the lifeblood of the believer's trust in him. To know and trust that no matter what you experience, it does not erase the goodness of God. It is the life of your trust. It's the lifeblood of your trust. You can trust Him because Scripture clearly illustrates how good He is. How should we respond? What did we say last week? Theology, learning biblical truths in context, always leads to doxology, right? an outbreak, an outpouring of unrestrained praise and worship. Little bits of this are captured in Psalm 145, verses 7 to 10. It says this, They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. So recognize the goodness of God. Rest in his faithfulness, too. It will carry you through this life. This life is hard sometimes. Um, and that brings us to the last one that we're going to talk about today, the patience of God. And so... I, again, challenge you, like, define for me, what is the patience of God? And tell me this, do you think, this kind of, duh, this is a rhetorical question, do you think you've ever experienced the patience of God? (laughs) Of course you have. All of humankind has experienced the patience of God, but you that are in Christ have a special type of patience that you experience from God. And so this this attribute is often less talked about than some of the big ones, like some of the bigger ones, you know. Um, and uh, you can hear this term also being referred to as God's long-suffering. Yeah, okay? The original Greek is makrothumia, which means long-tempered and patient. Um, Now, I want you to understand this. We tend to think about things based on a multitude of things that shape us. Our home, parents, teachers, the culture, 
being human beings, and especially in this John Wayne culture that we live in, what do you think when you encounter the patience of God or somebody who exhibits great patience, right? What do you think of? Well, instead of it being a sign of weakness or meekness, as the popular definition might make you think, true patience, true long-suffering, is a sign of strength, of character, confidence, boldness to resist rash actions or decisions. If not for patience and mercy, where would we be with God? He would act, right? He would act, but he doesn't need to because the fact that he knows everything and he has all power and all command of all his attributes means he can have true patience with us, right? That should make sense with regards to God. Having full command over all things, he's settled, you know? How does that compare to us? I'm the most impatient person I know. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I've got a lot of work to do in that regard. You know, we want it, we want it now. Especially when you're driving, right? And you're in a hurry. Every time you're in a hurry, you're going to get behind somebody slow. Why do I have to continually learn that lesson over and over again? You know, God will, He will keep, if you're caught in a loop that tends to repeat itself, ask yourself, wait a minute, what are you trying to teach me that I'm not getting? And you're trying to keep me from getting a ticket, so thank you. But that's, that's indicative of the nature of God, right? Patience. He's the epitome of long-suffering love. And, it, and he's not like we are. And so you can see this. We studied this in Romans 5, 8. It says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was long-suffering. He waited until such time as it pleased him to reveal Christ to us. And so patience as a part of God's essence is similar to but distinct from his mercy. Again, the great Puritan Stephen Charnock says, it is part of the divine goodness and mercy, yet differs from both. God being the greatest goodness, have the greatest mildness. Mildness is always the companion of true goodness. And the greater the goodness, the greater the mildness. Who so holy is Christ and who so meek? God's slowness to anger is a branch from his mercy. The Lord is full of compassion and slow to anger, it says in Psalm 145, 8. It differs from mercy in the formal consideration of the object. Now, follow me here. Mercy respects the creature as miserable. Patience respects the creature as criminal. Mercy pities him in his misery, and patience bears with the sin which engendered the misery and is giving birth to more. So he goes on to say, God is slow to anger because he is so great in power. He doesn't need to be in a hurry. And so that should make sense. That should make sense to us. And this is a beautiful attribute. It should be talked about more, I would say, because it's a reflection of his exalted majesty. You can see this. I'll read it to you from Psalm 103. You can see there that he forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies, he renews your youth like the eagles. He works righteousness and justice 
for all who are oppressed. And in verses 8 through 14, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Come to Christ, okay? Otherwise, you won't experience that. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The Lord is patient and kind, and he is exalted in his majesty. He knows how weak we are. He knows that we can't come before him on our own merits because we have none. And God is not a cruel dictator. He's not inconsistent. He's not contradictory. He's not hypocritical. You'll not find that anywhere in Scripture regarding his character. I'll remind you, we've said this before, Numbers 23, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The patience of God is also manifested to sinners as well. Um, You know, another definition that's really good to lend understanding to this attribute is that it has been said that patience is God's exercise of control over himself. So it's the power of control which he exercises over himself, causing him to bear with the wicked and forbear so long in punishing them. He's slow to anger and great in power, right? And so none of us in Christ or outside of Christ really deserve God's patience, um, even us in Christ. Because, you know, one day all accounts will be settled God does not forget or miss one single thing. Not one little thing in all of eternity does he miss. And so um, you will, those of you in Christ, you will encounter the lost. God will see to it, right? And how are we to act towards them? You know, has he given us permission to act on his behalf in an impatient, unmerciful way? So I want to ask you this. How ready are we to forgive real or imagined injury or bear with an offense? Where do we turn for guidance and instruction, right? Where's to to exhibit the attributes of God and the particular nature of Christ in in the implementation of our lives, right? In Matthew 5, Jesus said this about loving your enemies. You know, um, he says, You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Just like Him, the patience of God should mark your life and your, you know, when people look at you, they should see God, the attributes of God, not you. And He says this, For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So I would submit to you in the living of your daily lives, try to embrace and internalize and exhibit all of these attributes. And this one, it's hard, but it's easy. It's easy because you have power to do this. You have the ability to exercise godly patience with the loss, right? It's hard, though, because of the dialogue in your head, like, ah, you know, just pull off the road, Aaron, give it up, right? Um, so you, you, you teeter-totter between your human nature and the righteousness of the indwelling Christ. You can do this. I have confidence in you because the patience of God is manifested to his own people. We are recipients of this through Christ. Let me ask you this. Do we continue to sin after we're saved? Five seconds later, of course we do, in our mind and with our hands and our heart and everything else. But we experience the patience of God in two major ways and in innumerable small ways. So you can see patience related to, like I said before, the pre-salvation state in our sin and also in post-salvation with regards to our sin, right? Because it's punished on Christ. And also, we experience the patience related to waiting on God during trials, during hardship, during loss, and the things of life, whether they be small or really big, we are the recipients of it. Um, I want to ask you this, like, how do you reconcile God's patience in your life when you're going through suffering and sorrow and loss? How do you do that? Is it easy? If it was easy, it'd be easy, right? I sound like Yogi Berra. If it was easy, it'd be easy. It's not easy. But you can always go back to God's patience most notably seen when he sent forth his son. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. It will settle your soul. It really will. If you're going through something, don't turn away from the word of God. Turn to it. That's something that I learned. It sounds simplistic, but I promise you it will settle your soul right centered on the patience of God. And it remember, patience is the restraint that God places on himself, whereas mercy terminates wholly on us, on the creature, right? And that should provoke us to relief and gratitude. And it should promote an increasing confidence and trust in him. See the theme? You see the theme? It's the gospel. It's Christ It is the trustworthiness of God, the believability that everything he says is true. Every promise will be kept. You have nothing to fear unless you're outside of Christ. Then you have everything to fear, right? Get that relief and gratitude. You know, get the mercy through Christ. Get that confidence and trust to navigate this life. We tend to love the positive benefits of patience, And we constantly need to recognize that we are the undeserved recipients of it and also recognize 
that God is with us in trials. You can rest in that. You can believe on that. You can rest in His strength, in His love, in His patience. And so, this is a brief study. This is the... I know, I've got a lot of words, right? (laughs) This is the briefest I can be. Again, it's like skipping a rock over the water. We're just hitting the top. Um, We have all of eternity, though, so I'm not worried about missing anything. But there are several attributes that we didn't isolate and examine directly by themselves, like the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the wrath of God, the contemplation of God, and an unlimited list of others, right? And our lives, hopes, and mindset as we become ever more sanctified in Christ and as we look forward to our true home should be consistent with what C.S. Lewis said. There are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind because this is not our home. Revelation twenty-one twenty-three says, In the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the land. So there are far, far better things ahead of you, Christian. And and our hope should be settled on Him and with each other. We are bonded together as the family of God. We are not just this physical church. We are bound together through Christ with the church universal all over the world. And so we're commanded in Romans twelve five to think of it this way. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In 1 Thessalonians five eleven says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Um, so we're not all in the same place in our walk. We're not all in the same place in our stages of life. We're not all experiencing the same thing. We are the body and individually parts of it. And so we are to bond to each other, encourage each other, and remind each other of the hope that there is in Christ and our great God. We need to approach him with a seriousness and a recognition of who he is. I want you to meditate on this and I want to read. I never get tired of reading this. I want to read this from every moment holy because I want you to meditate. I want you to think about these things. It's not nearly enough. We could focus on one attribute and never hit bottom if we preached every every Sunday for a year. We'd never touch bottom. And so I want your thoughts to be right when it comes to thinking about who God really is especially in preparation for our study in Romans and Isaiah. Think about this. Meditate on these words. This is a liturgy of praise to the King of creation. And this is so true. This is so true of us. It says this, Our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. For seldom have we considered how specific is the exercising of your authority extending as it does into the myriad particulars of creation. There is no quarter over which you are not king. And as creation hurtles towards its liberation and redemption, the full implications of your deep lordship are yet to be revealed in countless facets, unconsidered. Christ, 
You are the snow king. You're the maker of all weathers. You're the king of sunlight and storms, the king of gray skies and rain. You're the rain king, the sun king, the hurricane king. You're the king of autumn and king of spring. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. The old and impotent little G gods our ancestors once believed in were at their best, but imperfect pictures of you whose strength and goodness and creative majesty and wonderful mystery and love exceed those old rumors as sunlight exceeds the tiny dimness of stars reflected in a dark and wavering pool. The fairy tales crafted by our old cultures hinted at you, though they knew it not. Yet their perfect princes and blessed ends were yearnings for all that has found fulfillment in you. You are the Lord of the harvest, the grain king, the wine king, the God of plenty, the God of hearth and home. You are the hill king, the wildflower king, king of the great bears, king of canyons. You are the monarch of meadows, the Lord of the lava fields, ruler of the desert waste, the polar king, the rainbow king, the king of the southern cross, and the king of the northern lights. You're the king of the rabbits and the Lord of tall trees. You are the God of youth and the God of age. You're the acorn king, the river god, the swamp king, king of glades, king of dells, ruler of all hummingbirds. You're the horse king, the crag king, lord of the bees, king of the walruses, commander of rhinos, lord of the lightning bugs, cave lord, mountain lord, ruler of the grassy plains, god of the valleys. You are the captain of the clouds, the wolf king, the king of the cockatoos. And our thoughts of you, O Lord, have been too small, too few. For your claim over creation is vast. You are the Lord of Antarctica, the king of California, the king of the Scottish hills, and the king of the Nile. You're the weaver of the unseen fabrics of the world. You're the Lord of the atoms, the ruler of electrons, the Lord of gravity, and the king of quarks. Your dominion enfolds the earth and rises beyond it to the furthest extremes of the stars. You're the Lord of the vast empty spaces. You are the king of the constellations, the black hole king, Lord of novas exploding, Lord of speeding light, high king of galaxies, king of Orion, king of the moon, and still, even still, our thoughts of you have been too small, too few, You're the God of justice, the God of wisdom, the God of mercy, the God of redemption. You are the Lord of love. All of this is true, but our thoughts of you are still too few, for our minds are too small to conceive of them all, let alone to contain them. You were before all things, you created all things, and in you all things are held together. There is no corner of creation you will fail to redeem. You are Lord of Lords, King of Kings. O Jesus Christ, our King of everything. I find these words to be incredibly true and poignant. And that's the mindset that I want you to have when you contemplate the attributes of your most holy God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you, this is not our home. This is just where we are now. And there are better things ahead than we leave behind, but we have to leave behind a legacy that 
honors God, right? So we'll close this service now and um, let's pray together. Father God, um, you are worthy. You're worthy of our best effort. You're worthy of our meditation. You're worthy of our contemplation. Um, There is none like you. You are indescribable, and yet you have ordained to give us descriptions um, of yourself that we can fathom, that we can understand, that we can relate to a lost world. Uh, You are a God of love and great patience and all the other attributes. And I thank you today for this most brief time that we have just to be together as your people and glorify your most holy name. I pray that you would um, receive this worship service in the spirit that which it was intended for, and that is to honor and worship you because you are worthy. And so we bow before you and thank you for gathering us today on this best day of the week and um, pray for all of those that have things on their mind, hopes and dreams and fears and all, all the rest, unspoken requests. I know that you know all things. We lift them up nonetheless. And again, I thank you. I thank you for this service. I thank you for all those that are gathered here. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.